Thanks, Charlie. Hey, it's good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. If I haven't met you, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to get to go through the Bible with you today. We are going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes today. If you can believe that, I think we've been in it for 15 weeks maybe. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 12. This is the 13th book of the Bible that we've gone through from front to finish um, since we started as a church. Maybe if you've just started coming, that's a pretty imperative thing for us. I'd say maybe two-thirds of the sermons we preach will be in that shape and form of moving from passage to passage to passage. One of the key reasons we do this, by the way, is because we believe theologically that Christ, the person of Christ, is the hero and really the centerpiece of every single book, right? Whether it's Exodus or Ecclesiastes or Revelation, that really it is all here to draw our gaze, draw our attention to the work that God has done for you and me in Christ. Um, also, we, we don't skip the hard stuff, right? It's hard to do a whole book and kind of maybe skip something without you noticing, right? So we've hit some really hard things. When we went through 1 Corinthians, we had to wrestle through some hard things. Acts, even this book said some things that, you know, when I was prepping for it, I thought, man, I'm going to have to teach a little bit on that because that sounds a little weird and it's a little hard. It would be easier to just kind of go around it and maybe hope that nobody noticed. Um, but this is a, a big conviction we have. And not just us, but the church that we planted Citizens Church, they have the same theology of the Bible and the same theology of how sermons are given. In fact, right now, a um, little side note, Chris is sick this morning, so Jake Peterman, one of our own, one of our missional community leaders is filling in over there. And I'm excited about, not, not that Chris is sick, I'm bummed out about that, it's not COVID sick, it's just stomach sick. Um, but what I'm excited about is the fact that we have people that we can just send over there that have speaking experience or who are gifted in that or who feel called to do that. And here's the best news. When I sent out the text this morning to see who would be able to, at a moment's notice, go over there and preach, I was able to send that out to seven people, right? Seven people. That's how cool this is. I have a dream, and me and, me and Randy were reflecting on this earlier. This has nothing to do with Ecclesiastes. I, I have this dream that there will be a day where we might on any given Sunday have five or six of our own leaders preaching and filling in to churches that need a pastor or an interim pastor or churches who just need help, that we would be able to carry um, a gift of preaching from legacy to different places all over. That's something that I'm excited about, and I think we're off to a good start. So, in fact, let's just go ahead and pray for citizens, pray for Jake. Jake had all of like nine minutes to get ready for this. When I called him, he was juggling two babies and some oatmeal, right? And then it was straight from that to his wife had to let go of him for a little bit so he could get ready for this sermon. So let's just pray for them and then pray for the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts as well. So, Father, we thank you for being good and sweet and generous and kind to us as a church, that you would give us the leadership that we need, not just for legacy, but I feel like the leadership that this city needs, that we would be able to export sturdy, robust, character-filled men and women who could serve other churches in various ways. Lord, that we would be a place that would be healthy for the city, or that Knoxville would benefit because of how we are discipling and building servant leaders. And so we pray specifically for Citizens Church right now that your Holy Spirit would speak and minister through Jake, 
that your spirit would inhabit the hearts and lock down on any distractions, that there would be real work done, real heart work done in that moment. And the same for here, Father, that even in this moment through this passage, Lord, that you would help us see you clearly as the hero of this passage, as the very centerpiece of this passage. And Father, that of all the distractions, we carried in here with us and we carried many, I did as well. Lord, that we would be able to shed those. And that, Father, your spirit would cause our eyes to see and our ears to hear what it is that you want to target and minister to and encourage and even challenge today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's finish this book. Ecclesiastes 12. While you're turning there, I, a quick com- com- confession. I've never been to the zoo here in Knoxville. I realized that the other day that we even have a zoo. <laughs> I've never been to the zoo. I've lived here for 10 years. My, my family has. I have not. And that's because I think that pretty much all zoos are the same, right? It doesn't matter. I've been to some really cool zoos and I've been to some real junky ones. And they all pretty much have the same animals in there. So I don't know what the big deal is. Um, but a few years ago, me and my family, we went to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., and again, it's a basic zoo, like I thought it would be, all except for one thing. They have the giant Chinese pandas there, right? There they are, big deal. Mao Zhong and Tian Tian, is their names, because of course. And they're on loan from China for another year, and then we give them right back to China. And uh, I know what a panda is because of internet and public school, and I've just never been all that amazed. Right? But after we got out of the car and I saw panda fever sweep over everybody at the same time, I thought there's got to be something different about these pandas. Like they're magical or something. Like they speak or do something crazy because of how everybody was behaving. Right? Everyone's all on top of each other, misbehaving, being rude just to get a glimpse of these pandas. So we go. We go and we join this maddening crowd at Panda Plaza. And I caught a glimpse of one of these pandas, and I say glimpse because if you've ever been to a zoo, all the animals will only give you a glimpse if you're lucky, especially the ones you really want to see. They're usually like behind a log or back in their little dens or something, and you just kind of go, well, do we wait or, you know, that's kind of how the zoo experience is. Well, one of them was behind a rock. I saw a piece of a foot and then a piece of the butt, and then I guess it was Tian Tian gets up and kind of saunters across the habitat, and then within minutes... Seconds. Within seconds, I was bored. Because <laughs> that bear looked like I thought it would look, just like a panda bear, just like I imagined. And it wasn't magical at all, and I didn't see what the big dumb deal was with these bears. So I left my family there, went out and sat on a bench. Ironically, next to Panda Plaza are the American bison, which I think are fascinating. I mean, this is the iconic American creature, a one-ton creature. I don't know if you know this, little bison fact for you. Back in 1800, there were 80 million of them walking around the fruited plain, 80 million. And there it is, all majestic looking like it belongs on a currency, right? It's just huge and majestic and steadfast and nobody even cares. They're just, they're flying past the bison to go see the panda, which isn't even a bear, by the way. It's like a raccoon or something. I mean, I'm just not unimpressed with the pandas. But Julia, my youngest, really wanted to see them and I really want her to be happy. So I was happy to go, but I was really happy to leave. I think what intrigued me most was not the pandas, but panda fever. Because I didn't get it. I didn't, <laughs> didn't make sense to me. I think, this is how, I think this is how a lot of people feel about God. 
I think this is how a lot of Christians feel about God. They hear that this God is worthy of admiration and wonder. And they see all the people lined up, sacrificing their time and their treasure and their talents just to get a glimpse of God. But they themselves, they don't get it. They don't know what the big deal is. This is the big question I want you to put on your dashboard as we move through this passage. Do you ever feel like everyone else in the room is more fascinated with God than you are? You ever feel like that? Like, well, how does it make you feel? Let me ask that. Like shame? Right? Is something wrong with you? Maybe it means you're not even a Christian. Right? Lots of people, they interpret this lack of fascination as some sort of a sign that they're not Christians. And hear me now, I'm not here to tell you that if that's the case for you, that you're not a Christian. That's not a question that I can answer for you, right? But let's be honest. I mean, that might be the reason for a lot of people that struggle with how fascinated and amazed they are with who God is. So let's talk about you for a minute. You. What do you do when you are not overwhelmed with the person that we call Christ? How do you handle you being underwhelmed with this weighty respect that everyone else is carrying around for God? You see, we're all created to carry this thing called the fear of God, right? We read it in the Bible. If you've read through the Bible, even a cursory reading, you've probably tripped on that phrase, fear of God, and not known what to do with it. But the fear of God is an awe or a respect, an amazement, uh, a fascination, astonishment, it's not the fear that we usually have in our mind when we say, like, I'm afraid of leprechauns or sharks. Or for me, I have a fear of white foods, like white creamy foods. I can't do it, right? It's not really what fear means. But if we're honest, there is some overlap between how we use the word fear and how the Bible uses the word fear when it's talking about the fear of God. Because you were created to have something delight you as you behold it, but also terrify you at the same time terrify you, right? Because this God that we serve, that we sing to, that we pray to, let's be honest, he's a terrifying God. He designed planetary orbits and also mapped out the blood vessels for your brain. In fact, in Exodus 20, we see this interesting interaction of the people of God before God. And it says this in Exodus 20. Stay where you're at. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. This would describe the fear of God. God has given us a capacity to behold something so beautiful and so valuable that it gets all of our passion and yet at the same time demands, demands our deepest respect, right? Wonder and wait. You could say it that way. And this is the fear of God. And in the garden, this was the relationship that Adam had with God before the fall. It was one of wonder and one of wait, where God was close and intimate to him in the garden, and yet he was beyond and he was overwhelming all at the same time. This God was approachable and yet very unapproachable, tender and untamable, all at the same time. This relationship is the one that Adam had before the fall, and it was wonderful, and it was fascinating, and it was full of wonder, and it was full of weight, and it's what we would call the fear of God. But then something happened in the garden, right? And here we have 
this book of Ecclesiastes with this confused, wise king. And like Adam before him, Solomon would carry his wonder and weight to the things under the sun, not to God. The things that would terrify him and enchant him at the same time were just these loose, shiny objects as we live this life under the sun. That's what the book is about. That's what all of Ecclesiastes is about, is how frustrating that kind of life is. How futile it is, how meaningless it is, how empty it is, how maddening it is. So where does this leave you and where does this leave me? Because we're looking at Solomon talk about wine and women and song and laughter and money and power and achievement and authority and legacy and knowledge. And he's he's trying to satisfy this broken soul with the broken things. And he's coming up short every time. And so he finishes the book like this. This will be in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. And this is going to be the word of the Lord for us, and we will see Christ vividly in this passage, I believe. He said, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with, with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed, and the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. Okay, so if we just pause just for a second right here. Did you notice that the voice changed? He's the, the, the preacher, Solomon, is being referred to in the third person. This is called the narrator or a frame narrator. The last time we heard this guy talk was in chapter one. Now he's re-entering the picture as we finish the story off. It's like a movie. You see movies where the narrator does this. He kind of opens it up and sets the plot a little bit, sets the setting, and then the movie rolls on, and then the narrator comes back in right before the credits roll. So just imagine Morgan Freeman's voice right here because he is the best narrator in history. But that's what's happening. And what is he saying? He says Solomon is an artisan of truth. He's a composer of truth because he's taking words of delight and he's taking words of power and he's weighing them and he's arranging them properly. And that's an art form, is it not? This is why my hardest, some of my hardest classes in college were my favorite and why some of my easiest ones, they weren't so much the ones I love going to, right? Because of how they brought truth. This is why we like some communicators and not others because truth arranged in certain ways will elicit something deep in us. I mean, just because something is wise and true doesn't mean you hear it. And it is a side, maybe a little bit of a, a rabbit trail here, evangelism. It's important that when we carry the gospel, the good news of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus who came to live, die, and live again for us, as we bring this beautiful news, it's important that we are accurate and truthful in everything that we say. But it is a story that should ignite imagination. It should provoke longing because it's a story of intrigue and passion and action. It's a beautiful story. And he also says that these words that are arranged, they're arranged in such a way that they look like a goad or a nail firmly fixed. A goad, we don't use that word very much today. It's like a prod, right, where we kind of steer animals, where we move. And then a nail firmly fixed is just a nail that's been pounded into something. And the truth about both of those things is that you can't ignore when they're being used, right? A nail that's been nailed in, you can't be ignored. It's there. A goad, you can't ignore what that's doing. It's prodding you. 
And both of these things, they have a sting whenever they are used. This is what the best wisdom does though, right? It gets your attention, cannot be ignored, and it might sting a little bit when you hear it. And this is what an artisan of truth will do. He goes on and we'll go back to verse 11, the last part of that. And he says that these are given by one shepherd, one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Okay, this wisdom that we're talking about is given by one key voice, the one great shepherd. Now you will find passages in the Old Testament where when it refers to King David, it calls him the one shepherd. It's likely that he's talking about Solomon here when he's calling him the one shepherd. But this is one thing that Solomon knew from his dad, David, is the one key and chief shepherd is not him, it's not his dad, but it is the God that leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. This is what it says in Psalm 23. Again, stay where you're at. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You want to know why this psalm is such a crowd pleaser? Why you always see it on movies? Why people who don't even love Jesus love this psalm? It's because it promises an answer to all the things that are unsettled in us. All of our question marks are met with an answer in this psalm. The Lord is this strong caretaker that undoes everything that haunts us and restores us and gives us peace and calm and rest. And that's just not something we walk around with. Goes on, verse 13, these are the last two verses. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay. This is the main idea of the passage, but it's the main idea of the whole book, what he just gave. He just landed the plane. 222 verses leads us to this. We finally find out what is the purpose of mankind. To fear God and to walk in his ways. That's what it means to follow his commands, to walk in his ways. We know this is repeated by John a few times in the New Testament. He says this in 1 John 2. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Later on he'll say that those commandments aren't burdensome. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The whole purpose of mankind is not just to walk in his commandments, but to enjoy him. To glorify him by how much we enjoy him. To have a fear, a working fear that we even see described in the Old Testament. That's the purpose of your life. It's to carry a deep admiration for who God is. To hold him as your deepest joy. To walk in the shape of Jesus where the laws and the commands are not burdensome. This is what it looked like for Adam to live before the fall. That's what he's calling us to. To be drawn to the approachable God and yet trembling at the feet of a very unapproachable God at the same time. To be amazed that your God is nothing like you. He's nothing like us at all. And yet we're fascinated that he came to be with us. To be comforted. That he has known you intimately since the womb and yet tremble. That he also at the same time knows all of your deeds and thoughts and he weighs them accordingly. Here's our big problem and this is where Ecclesiastes 12 finds us most broken. We yawn at the wonder of God. The wonder and the weight of God finds us 
bored. We're bored with the gospel. We're bored with the person of Christ. We're bored with the church. And I'm not talking about a service, but just the idea that there's a blood-bought people that bores us. And now listen, there are things that will stop us in our tracks, but God is not one of them. There are things that terrify us, things that horrify us, but God will not be one of them. This is why a lot of us feel unsettled and uncomfortable in settings where there is deep worship, right? Because we are not in a place of fearing, admiring, enjoying, being intoxicated with the person of God. So when you get yourself in a situation where everyone is praying or you get yourself in a situation where people are worshiping and hands are up, listen, you might struggle that people worship like this. It's not a theological issue that you're having, though. Let's be honest. It's indicting that you're not doing it. There's an indictment that you're, there's nothing in you that throws your arms up for you. If you're struggling with it, that's why you struggle with it. I know what it feels like to feel out of place in settings where there's deep worship. It feels like you're involved, but you're not really involved. You're just barely there. And there's this shame that kind of washes over you because it feels like everybody else is in love. Everybody else gets it, and you don't get it. This is why a lot of people wonder if they're even a Christian. Because if I was a Christian, I wouldn't be bored right now, would I? This is why, like I was at Panda Plaza, Wondering what is the big deal? What's the big deal? Sure, God is good. I grew up saying it. All of my friends say it. I read about Jesus in the Bible. He seems like a good guy. I don't disagree with anything I read, but I just don't know what the big deal is. This is also why not just at Legacy, but maybe even corporately, church capital C, this is why Bible discovery is so low in the, in the church. Or Bible IQ is low in the church. Because the Bible is not a goad. It's not a firmly fixed nail. It's not something that gets our attention. It's something that we can easily ignore. Usually when I bump into young men and we start tripping on the fact that they are not very, very good students of the Bible, they don't know their way around it, they don't read it, usually what I will hear is, I'm not a good reader or I don't like reading, right? False, totally false. You're just bored with what you're reading. That's what you really mean to be saying. Where the words of life are not just words of life, they're just words. Of course you don't like reading. But friends, listen, if most of your Bible dietary intake is from me here on Sunday mornings, you got to know your soul is craving more. you got to know your soul is craving more. And friends, listen, even as I bring this up, I know it's producing shame. I know even as I say these things, I know, I, I, I know there's a piece of you that says, I know, i got to get in the Bible more. I've been meaning to do that. New Year's resolution. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get a Bible reading plan. And listen, don't let that happen. Don't do that right now. Drop that. That's not what we're after, right? The, the, the idea that it's just about taping yet another Bible reading plan to the inside of your journal cover with it's full of blank pages that you don't even use, right? We're not after that. I want to go after something much deeper than that today, okay? Because it's not just Bible discovery that's a problem. It's prayer as well, right? Isn't it prayer? Where they're, they're not so much admiration-soaked but request-driven, we're already slow as a people to bring our requests to God because we really secretly feel like we don't need his help. We just need another shot or more time or more money and we can get it done. But when we do pray, what does that conversation even look like? Is it born of thanksgiving, 
wonderment. How easy is it for you to sit for two minutes, two hours, and just admire and be thankful and give yourself to the Lord's feet to say how beautiful and gracious he is. And again, even as I bring this up, I know how easy it is for shame to come and provoke you to say, I know, i got to get better about prayer. But again, let's not do that. Not, Not today. Not at this moment. We're after something more. See, that's what our hearts want to do. We want to buckle down. When we feel the shame come over of how much we don't fear God, where there's no wonder and there's no weight, we want to change something. We want to develop a new routine and a new rhythm. And listen, if, if you know anything about me, I am all about new rhythms and new routines. I'm, a, I'm an incredibly disciplined person. And I, I, I will oftentimes plug and play new routines and new rhythms to fix problems. But can we admit that the problem here is not a routine? It's a heart issue. It's a fascination issue. So when I say these things of, what it could look like to fear God, it might provoke in you, I know I should be different. I know I should be different right now. I don't hold this wonder and wait like I should, so I'm going to add something. Today's the day. I'm going to get rid of something, I'm going to add something. And we bring discipline or strategic solutions to what is really a fascination problem, a love problem. And this is why new plans struggle so much. It would be like me going back to Panda Plaza Saying, if I, maybe if I stand on the other end and look at the bears a little bit differently, maybe if I squint with one eye or come back 10 minutes a day, maybe then they will make sense. No, they won't. They're dumb bears that aren't even bears. You're never going to love them. <laughs> Listen, I can go ahead and check. Kick, kicking on panda bears in a pulpit off my bucket list. I've always wanted to do that. I've never liked that animal. There it is. Check. <laughs> but this is the real task for you and me. To take whatever it is that is currently stopping us in our tracks. It might be work. It might be achievements. It might be entertainment. It might be another person. Whatever is holding wonder and weight to you and your life and bring it to the cross to be questioned thoroughly. Why the cross? Cross is where God's unapproachable demands come face to face with our approachable answer in Jesus. You see, God is perfectly righteous, and he has righteous demands. He has high demands, but he doesn't just dish out high demands. He actually answers them himself. That's why the gospel is good news. If he didn't answer it in himself, then we, we better get to work. We better roll up our sleeves because being perfectly righteous is hard. In fact, it's impossible. It's at the foot of the cross that we feel this terrifying weight of being guilty. It's not just the blood on the crosses. There's blood on our hands. And yet Christ comes and he is the defender of the guilty, which is why the gospel is so good for us. We feel this horrifying reality that we are the enemies of God at the foot of the cross. And yet Jesus comes and is an ally to God's enemies. We feel this smothering weight of our shame that we carry with us to the foot of the cross. And yet we have this hero in Christ who comes and says, I will take your shame. And I'll take it upon myself. And I'll give you a freedom to be a son and a daughter with no shame anymore. Right? The cross is where you and I take all the shiny things that we are fascinated with. The things that terrify us if we lose. The things that have all of our imagination. The things that we put all of our trust in. The cross is where we take all of the shiny objects that have our deepest affections and we interrogate them. Dear job, where have you brought me purpose and meaning? Where have you pulled that off for me? Where have you totally satisfied my meaning in this world? 
Dear achievements, where have you ever followed through on what you were going to promise me? Still waiting. Dear entertainment, how long have you really taken away my pain and my boredom? 30 seconds? Dear money, where did you keep your promises? Where did you keep your promises that you would be enough? You always said just a little bit more would pull it off. A little bit more, a little bit more. When when have you followed through on your promises? We see this key interaction between Christ and a broken woman in John 4. It's one of my favorite passages. I I don't think it gets a sermon. I think it gets a series. I'm just going to barely mention it. Where Jesus is speaking to a woman who had to come out and draw water from a well cloaked in shame. Cloaked in shame. And they have this interaction about the water, and Jesus, towards the end of the passage, says, listen, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him the reason why she has shame. I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, no, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. So what you've said is true, right? Now, what's going on here? Now, Christ is interacting with her point of shame, and that's valuable for us. But he's also, he's also interacting a little bit with this thing that stops her in her tracks. What she carries her wonder and weight to, which is that a man will complete me. A man will keep his promise. A man will bring ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction. A man will get the job done. And Christ is bringing her face to face with the fact that that's just not going to happen. Ask whatever it is you are interrogating. Have you died for me? Whatever it is that fills in the blank for you, have you loved me at my worst? Have you saved me from death? Have you given me life? Because Solomon just spent 12 chapters saying he tried everything, and the answer is no. No. Friends, listen, whatever has weight and wonder before you that is not Christ, has it really brought you everything it promised it would? I mean, you say it. Has it really led you into cool pastures and restored your soul and rescued you from the shadow of haunting death? Has it brought you so much purpose that you don't need anymore? Has it, has it developed so much satisfaction in your inner person that you're just full? Because for the rest of our days, you and me, we're going to walk on this planet and we're going to have to deal with these little mini savior idols in this life under the sun that promise so much meaning and so much purpose. And it's going to be upon you and me to test their claims against what God has done for us. And this is what God has done for us. He left his blinding and unapproachable glory to come into common, broken creation. He was approachable. He came from glory, and he entered our maddening life under the sun. He became wisdom. He became wisdom. Wisdom with legs and hands and tears and hugs and blood He came to fulfill this promise that every single idol gave but could never, ever follow up with. It would be Christ that would say, you will thirst no longer, but then actually follow through with it. He would say, I will bring you peace, and he would bring peace. I'll bring you to better pastures. I will restore you, he says. I will bring you purpose. I will bring you satisfaction. These are the lies we've been hearing from all the idols in our lives forever. We've been hearing these lies, and they're never going to do it. They're never going to follow up. They're never going to hold up their end of the deal. So Christ comes. Jesus is the conclusion of this book. And that's what I want you to see in Ecclesiastes 12. Jesus is the punctuation mark, 
Because when you read the last two verses and you finish with, you know, fear God and keep his commandments and see ya, and that's the end, it's supposed to leave you with a little bit of, uh, okay, but, okay, but keep talking. Like what happens if you don't really fear God and you don't follow his commands? It's supposed to leave you a little empty, like you're hanging a little bit. It's supposed to leave you a little hungry. Does that on purpose. A thousand years later after this, Christ would come and he would come to feed the hungry and finally be living water that would spring up in us, right? Jesus is the punctuation mark on the end of a book full of futility. And he takes our futile lives that are vain, that are broken, that are searching, and he brings meaning to them. So finally, wine, woman, and song has meaning. Your relationships have meaning. Celebration has meaning. Partying has meaning. Work has meaning. Building achievements has meaning. Authority has meaning. Legacy and reputation has meaning. All of this has meaning. Finally, finally. And the gospel beckons us to lay down our idols at his feet, trembling in fear and yet dancing in joy at the very same time. That's what the gospel beckons us to. So listen, whether you're saved or not, it's the same question. Does Christ satisfy you? Does Christ satisfy you? Does he terrify you with his panoramic grandeur and yet pull you in at the same time with his fatherly intimacy? Is he both general and king and friend and father at the same time? Is he? Here's a better question. Do you fear him? Do you fear him? And why? Why should you? Why should you look at the gospel and the hero of the gospel with any weight and wonder? Why should you? What has it done for you? What kind of value does it have for you? Those are questions only you can answer. Those are the better questions for a time like communion. We'll take communion here in a moment. We'll pray here in a moment. Those are the questions I want you to ask yourself. Don't let my, don't let my reasoning be substituted in for your conviction. Why do you see God with weight and wonder? What does the cross mean for you? Only you can answer that. God says something very key in Ezekiel 36, 26. Stay where you're at. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And this heart of flesh he's talking about is one that will respond and finally see the weight and the wonder of who God is. Listen, the day before God radically rescued me from myself as I ran headlong straight into hell in a, in a very vain and maddening life, the day before I didn't see the weight and the wonder of God. I couldn't see it. I had a heart of stone. I couldn't respond to that. I see the blood on the cross and it was just nothing but a decoration. I didn't have any blood on my hands. It's not my deal. That was before the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit was put in me and I was able to see and feel with this heart of flesh, it was just not looking at the cross and looking at the blood and saying, oh my God, what have I done? It was, oh my God, what have you done? You have come to rescue me and my heart could feel. And this fear of God I kept hearing about as a young man made sense because I was trembling and dancing at the same time. It's the fear of God. Friend, if your heart is not full, regardless of whether you think you are a Christian or not, my admonition is the same. Come close to God now by laying down your idols. It's the same answer. 
Come close to God now by laying down your idols. This is Jesus in his conversation with that woman. He goes back to her and says, everyone who drinks of this water, they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Sure, she didn't want the shame of returning back to that well over and over again. But I think she's also a little bit done with the empty idols and their empty promises. I think she figured out that another guy was not going to be the answer. So friend, what is it that stops you in your tracks? That's what Ecclesiastes is asking you and me. What do you fear? What flexes your imagination? What terrifies you at the, the, maybe the thought of losing it? What fascinates you? What draws you in? What do you behold with wonder and wait at the same time? And when Jesus says, I have water that ends thirst, what will you do with that? What will you do with that? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being good to us in this moment. I thank you for being sweet and kind and thoughtful. You've given us a complete gospel. There is a lot in your word of God, and books like Ecclesiastes are difficult, but you have made the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. And we've been able to read this Bible and get out of it what we need to live and enjoy a life of godliness. And in a very plain way, you've shown us that we have a lot to reckon with in the gospel. We are a people with stray affections. Our hearts wander and even I know as I walk in here, just like everybody else, I have to ask myself the same questions, Lord. What is it that I'm beholding with more weight and wonder than you? And what has it promised me that it's actually fallen through with? <laughs> what are the idols, the things, the shiny things in this life under the sun that I've become so entranced by that you've become boring? And, Lord, that we would reckon with that even in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would change our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would take a heart of stone out, and even in this house, even in this city, put hearts of flesh in, that we would see what you have done, what we have done, and we would answer with trembling knees and a dancing heart. You are good, and you are great. Let us never forget that as a church. And as we respond to you today, we respond with thanksgiving and thankfulness. And yes, we even practice the fear of God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, go ahead and stand with me. I don't, we haven't taken communion yet. Go ahead, does someone, can someone run back and get the little elements? You got them? Thanks, bud. I actually need one of those too if you pitch it to me. That would be fine. We're going to go through communion. This isn't something that we did pre-COVID together. Typically, we'd have the tables in the back. Um, big fans of husbands um, leading their families in communion or missional communities getting together and us taking it in plurality. Obviously, we're not doing, you know, the, the bread dunk in the juice right now. Um, but we are going to use these little manufactured things. You might, go ahead and pitch me one, would you? And then, uh, or, Thanks. You didn't have any confidence that I would catch. You came all the way down here. So we're going to pull the, the clear one up. 
and then there's the wafer, and then the juice is underneath it. Listen, there's nothing magical about this time, but it is a serious time. It's not a magical time, but it's a supernatural time, if I can say it that way, right? This, this does not come, the body of Jesus, once it enters you, right? But it's still a, it's still a very valuable symbol for us, right? So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through it together, and then they're going to lead you in worship. But this is a piece of the response that Charlie was talking about before we started. So, Father, we thank you for this bread that symbolizes a broken body, right? That this, this bread is a symbol of how approachable you became, that you didn't stand in the far off. You were not a god of the ether, but you came and you put skin on, skin that we were going to break and tear at and destroy, And you did that for us, that we would be rescued into greener pastures, into a place of restoration. So we take this bread in remembrance of you. And Father, we thank you for your blood as well. Again, we know it's juice, but the symbol of what it is is for us to have a heart of flesh Yours had to be broken first. As your heart bled and you cried tears of blood in your prayers, all of that would beget a people of God that would have royal blood in them as well. That this is, yes, symbolic of your blood, but it's also symbolic of the fact that we are connected to you. We are your sons and we are your daughters. So, Lord, we thank you for the act of the gospel where you sent your treasure in your son to come and die and then live again for us. So we take this juice in remembrance of you. And so, Father, as we worship with hands up or hands down, we worship with a heart that is alight with the fire of imagination, of possibility, of hope, of fervor, of thanksgiving, of a relentless zeal, And Lord, we just pray that today would be the day that we would enjoy you and be more satisfied with you than anything that this world has to offer. And Lord, we thank you for this book, this hidden gem of Ecclesiastes. It's been good for us. It's been good for me. It's been good for our church. Good for our city, I think. And so Lord, as we enter into worship, help us sing to you as God with a fear in our heart. Not fear that we cannot come close, but a fear that you have drawn us close because of the work you've done in Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.